Welcome to The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. I'm Lars Capatici, your host. In this episode, I interview Ashley Renwick right after she interviews me for her podcast, Waldorfy. Ashley was so fun to talk to, and she started Waldorfy as a way to inspire parents to find joy in raising their whole child. Her dream is to create an inclusive community of parents who are interested in learning more about Waldorf education and the study of anthroposophy. So it was so fun that we got to talk. We take on all kinds of topics, including anthroposophy and what it's like when you're first exploring it. And we touch on Steiner and race too, a huge topic that's up in the world right now. So we hope you enjoyed the episode and we're glad that you're supporting our podcasts. I'm also really excited to announce that the Anthroposopher has its first sponsor, Educare Do. I'll talk to you a little bit more about it at the end of the episode. Stay tuned because you can get a special code for their distance learning programs about anthroposophy. Hey, Ashley. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Thank you for being on the Anthroposopher with me. And we just got through um, an interview that I just had with you for your podcast. Can you tell people about your podcast right up front? Because it's so great. Yes, I know. And in our conversation on the Walter P podcast, we almost forgot to mention the Anthroposopher. So we'll have to do it at the beginning now. So uh, my name is Ashley Renick, and I'm the host of the Walter podcast, which some listeners may have heard of. I started Walter almost a year ago now. Well, I, at first I started a blog, but writing is not my passion and I'm not the best writer. And I thought, oh, how can I communicate my thoughts in a way that's more accessible to more people? Um, and I had listened to podcasts for a long time. So I thought it was uh, a good idea. And I, my, when I set out with my blog and the podcast, what I wanted to do was make the ideas in Waldorf education and their roots in anthroposophy more accessible to more people. That's really what I, that was my mission when I set out. Uh, so last summer I did a season on just Waldorf basics, you know, all these ideas around Waldorf education that are kind of just surface. And then I had a lot of interest from people about doing episodes relating to Waldorf ideas more in the home, particularly with young children. So that was all of last fall. I was saying that's kind of was my season two. Uh, and then all winter now into the spring, I've done a whole season on anthroposophy. And for people that listen to your podcast, it may also be really just um, scraping the top, you know, just kind of touching the surface on some of the topics under the, as I call it, this umbrella of anthroposophy. There are so many. And just to introduce the audience to different ideas within anthroposophy, a lot of the audience come to me through uh, going to, they've attended, uh, their child attends a Waldorf school or they've heard of Waldorf education and anthroposophy is, uh, seems a big, huge thing, a little inaccessible. I know a lot of parents with young children like myself, it's, uh, I've had how, I've had how to know higher worlds on my bedside table for about six years and still haven't made it all the way through. So uh, I wanted to have guests on that could speak to these different topics in a way that was accessible and hopefully relatable. So that was my objective for this last season. And I do hope to do more in the realm of anthroposophy over time, because that is the whole tagline of the podcast is Waldorf education and what's behind it, you know, also anthroposophy. So yeah, that's what that's what I do at the on the podcast. Well, you're doing such a great job, Ashley, and it's so relatable. And I think there's so many Waldorf parents that are interested in, in what it is. And um, 
maybe their school's bringing it in different ways and maybe not. So it's great that they have this resource through uh, your podcast, Waldorf. Yeah. And the other thing that I think I noticed as well, I am a Waldorf uh, alum. I went to Waldorf school grades one through eight and my husband went K through 12 and his parents are uh, both uh, former teachers. So I noticed my parents I grew up in the, you know, late 80s, 90s, they sort of found Waldorf education and thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know, this is a great school. It makes me feel really good when I'm in this kindergarten classroom. Let's kind of send our kids here. And they were happy and everything was wonderful. Then I realized our generation, because my husband and I took our son to a parent-child class, we have access to all this information at our fingertips all the time. And when I started to look up things having to do with Waldorf education and anthroposophy, the stuff that first came up on Google was really overwhelming and so much of it inaccurate that that really sparked me to say, wait a second, there needs to be a more accurate picture here that's separate from the Waldorf schools. Because it's sort of like if you go, if somebody's trying to sell you cigarettes, they're never going to like tell you the the whole story about like the cigarette, right? Like that it's actually not that good for you. This is a horrible <laughs> comparison, by the way, because Waldorf education is wonderful and all these things are so wonderful that we're talking about. But I felt that as a parent interested in the Waldorf school, it was probably hard for them to just digest and be like, yes, 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 to everything that they heard the Waldorf School said. And I wanted to create a space that was a little bit separate from that so that I could really explore these ideas uh, from a more objective place, I guess. And I do present in the beginning of my podcast that I am biased because I do love Waldorf (laughs) education, have an interest, but I try to be more objective. Well, I, I think we're trying to do some of the same work in, in that case. You know, I, I feel like um, it's hard if you go to like, okay, so the Anthroposophical Society has branches and you might walk into, a, which is, you know, local groups that meet. If you walked into a branch, it, it might be hard to take everything in at first. So it's nice to have like these intermediate steps like a podcast can give um, it to, to explore what's out there. And the internet is hard. And I think the same thing happens with anthroposophy. When you type it into the internet, you'll get all kinds of things, just like you would with Waldorf. And there's so many positive, beautiful things. And then everybody has opinions. And so it's nice to... Um, be on a path where you're exploring it together with other people. Um, and, and by the way, that, that would be the best way to read How to Know Higher Worlds with somebody else. <laughs> Good 10 out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, so what, what interests you about anthroposophy? Because I think, like you said, a lot of people can go through Waldorf education and, oh, sorry, I have kids yelling in the background. A lot of people can go through Waldorf education and maybe not connect with anthroposophy, but you you made a decision to go a little bit further. What, what was there for you? Of course. Yeah, I wanted to point this out, actually, when I was interviewing you for my podcast, that just the number of kids, I guess, that go through a Waldorf school and graduate and at the other end can even, certainly in the U.S., can even describe what anthroposophy is, is very few. I think there are some Waldorf schools in the U.S. maybe that are offering some introduction to anthroposophy. You would know more than me at the end and maybe grade 12, um, and certainly not in the charter schools, I'm sure. So right. for me, I, I think it's, you know, having, like I said, gone through Waldorf education and at the end, my husband having gone through even more all the way through grade 12, I, and as a parent starting to come back saying, 
this is really rich. There's a, there's a lot more than just, um, the wooden toys, than the beautiful natural materials in this classroom. There's, you know, why are we singing? Why are we painting? Why are we sculpting? Why are, why are we using watercolors? You know, all of these really specific things started to come up for me around what I was seeing, taking my son to a parent-child class and what I had personally experienced. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, so this is again, me saying what's even behind Waldorf education, because just alone Waldorf education is so rich. I was doing a podcast interview with Charles Andrade, uh, who's a Lazor artist about Lazor painting and art. And he was talking about how you introduce value to a, uh, Waldorf student. It's not something you're introducing in grade one. Or two. It's so specifically introduced. I believe it's grades six or seven. And it's, I remember specifically, I think I was in seventh grade, drawing a sphere and just doing the shadow and then the um, value across the sphere. And the way he described that in terms of the experience of the young student is how, is how, what is the experience of of in development for that young, young person and 12, 13, like just becoming a teenager. It's when you begin to experience those extremes, you know, like, I love you. Mm. I hate you. It's like, no mom, I hate you. You don't know me, you know? And here we are discovering value and across a, an image. And that was so uh, dramatic in my mind. It stuck out as such a specific thing to introduce within art and art medium at a time that was so needed and so ready and, and the young student would be so ready for that. So things like that. I mean, that was of course, after I was already interested in anthroposophy, uh, things like that began to spark moments like that and things like that, that I would learn about Waldorf education made me much more interested in anthroposophy. And I, already um, had practiced a lot of yoga. So I was definitely interested in more holistic, more holistic ways of living and views of the human being, of the body, of um, just holistic living um, overall. And, and also I moved back to my hometown with my husband to, and this is actually quite, <laughs> quite interesting about anthroposophy. I moved back to my hometown which is Wilton, New Hampshire. And anybody, lots of people listening probably know that we have a wonderful Waldorf school here, which is where my husband and I went. And my husband's uh, father was a teacher for a long, long time. But we also have a biodynamic farm here. And so as a kid, I was on the farm and experienced uh, the farm. But it's so different as an adult. And all of the little tiny things that make a difference in creating a scenario where we actually from my understanding, really replenish the land as we're farming and how the animals are taken care of. And it's, and how that just all kind of hums with life. The whole picture started to become more full for me. And that's when I started to piece together that anthroposophy was a picture that made me feel like I was a part of something that was so much bigger and outside myself than I had an understanding of, but also something that I could understand. I had a conversation last summer with a Waldorf alum whose parents were so deeply entrenched in anthroposophy and uh, the 
all sorts of ideas within anthroposophy. His father was a biogenomic farmer and his parents were just brilliant. And so he's a young person, very interested in anthroposophy. And he, you know, also was so enthusiastically describing all of these ideas. And that, that was another thing that also got me, sparked my interest because in my experience, a lot of the, and as you know, Waldorf kids, we, I hope that all of your listeners can hear this in a loving and endearing way. We would say, oh, you know, those anthropops, those guys, because they were all <laughs> our parents' generation, you know, when we were high school students, you're like, oh, you know, they're just, they're those anthropops. And now, now coming at as, as an adult and looking at all of the pieces and the way that they fit together, we're going, huh? Yeah. There's something here that's special, isn't there? Um, so those are kind of all of, the, that was a long way to get to it, but those are kind of all of the things that tied in that have made me more interested over time. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great story about, you know, you're on the farm when you're young and you just accept everything you're seeing there and it, it comes in through you. And then when you get older, you know, you have this other perspective from a little up higher and it's like, whoa, look at all the things that are coming together here and how they work together. And I think that anthroposophy creates this field of meaning um, and depth that we can not experience sometimes in just day-to-day life. And it invites us into another um field of meaning that if, if, if I hadn't read how to know higher worlds, I wouldn't maybe understand the perspective of, you know, the whole human being and, and why I feel depleted sometimes and why sleep is so important, what's happening then. And I wouldn't know if you hadn't been on that farm, like, like the different ways that the animals are interacting with the plants and are interacting with the stars are interacting the role of the human being in that. So, yeah. And I think in, in the interview that you did with me, um, we talked about, you know, you talked about the layers, how many layers there are to anthroposophy. And I hear you, you know, alluding to this there, um, in those, uh, those old crunchy, uh, granola anthropops that were everybody's parents and grandparents. At the school. Yes. Yes. And I think that something important to point out is that if, you know, you are a parent and you're seeing your, uh, 14 year old, your 15 year old, your 18 year old still going, oh, you know, Waldorf or like, oh, mom and those ideas, they also aren't fully developed yet. So that last phase it's 14 to to 21. And that was certainly true for me. There's no way that I could have possibly arrived at being able to see this full picture until at least past 21, maybe even arguably older. Um, and I don't know if that's been your experience where you talk to young people. And I am sure that there are young people under 21 who are interested in anthroposophy. I'm not saying that they're not, but I think that for the parent that's going, wow, I just sent my child through this whole process of older <laughs> education and they don't get it at all. You know, they'll, they will arrive later. And, and, uh, I I've spoken to so many alumni who have felt that way when they're going through, because you just, I don't know that developmentally, you have the ability to see and feel the entire scope of what you're um, experiencing until you can look back. At least that was the case for me. 
I, I think that's so true because when you're in something, it's hard to step out and get that meta picture. And I think when you're a teenager, you actually can't, you know, like you're just in it. And totally. it, it, yeah, so it's, it's so nice to hear the stories of people that go through and then they're like, whoa, okay, yeah, that was something. <laughs> Let me find out more now, you know? So um, you have a kiddo and how old, how old again? He's two. He just turned two. He just turned two. So um, how do you feel like this is affecting you in your home now? You said you you did a whole kind of series on the, the home and early childhood. And, you know, do you feel like um, you're able to work with um, what you were given through your education with him? And what are some of the challenges? What are some of the things that work there and don't work there? Yes, it's it's so it's so interesting. I could talk about this all day long. One of the things that has impacted me the most, I think, and I had younger siblings, so that kind of ties into this, through my mother's parenting and through uh, going to, I started Waldorf Education at grade one, but have seen kindergartens obviously now and and preschools. Um, And my sisters, I started at grade one, my sisters were younger, like I said. So this aspect of rhythm um, really has impacted my life in such a positive way way. And it's so, our bodies have natural rhythm. Um, and sleep is so important, like you mentioned, and it's so hard to get little, little children to sleep. I'm sure all anybody listening can remember if you've had small children or if you have small children, you know, and this whole concept of rhythm and maintaining a consistent daily rhythm with him, which I gathered through my parent child class and reading that I've done, um, and just beginning to understand more deeply what we need as human beings to thrive, that has so positively impacted my life with my son and uh, my parenting, my life with my husband, because for him and the benefit for you know, a young child is that he has predictability in his day. Things are less stressful. Uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners already know this, that he is just one enormous sense organ. It's so intense to watch him just taking things in all the time. And when the rhythm of the day is consistent, um, everything goes better. Behavior is better. Sleep is better. And I've said this to parents so many times, not just for him, for me too. I know that at this point in the day, I'm going to have a little rest point, you know, and I, I know to also be ready to go outside again when he gets ready, gets up from his nap. And that's part of our rhythm, um, in the consistency of just being outside every day, which we've really, uh, commit ourselves to, um, has also just impacted our mood, my husband and I, and our overall health and well-being. And the other thing is just eating well, as well. And just observing how eating the right foods impact, you know, we want to do that for him, but that impacts us as well. And, you know, something is the simple things make such a a difference, you know, doing things as simple as just making bread, which I know so many people are doing now because I can't find yeast anywhere in the grocery store. Um, But just simply baking bread with children is so powerful and connecting and committing yourself just to more time allows for these things to really be doable. If I schedule something in a day, you know, a podcast interview or um, to get something from a store, which I usually try not and drag my son out to do. I mean, I'm fortunate right now. I actually live with my in-laws, so we have some extra help there. Uh, But I try to just schedule one thing a day at this point. And I'm a stay-at-home parent, so that's pretty doable. Um, But I did just want to mention one other thing about him being a young uh, so young and how that's also 
brought me to be interested in anthroposophy is, and I just was introduced to this book, The School of Elemental Beings. I don't know if you've read it um, by Karsten Masai, and I would strongly recommend it to your uh, to your listeners. This concept of uh, him seeing more than I see has been of interest to me since he was much younger than he is now. Just how he looks into the world in such a a, a deep way. And I, I find that I've, it kind of just started to come to me, well, I wonder what he sees out there. We would even say that to each other. My husband, I wonder what he sees. What does he see out there when he's really looking out into the forest or looking out into the grass? Um, and, and I, that has kind of, I keep coming back to that and, um, keep, he'll, he will get older and he will, the way he sees the world will, will change, but that's definitely sparked my interest, uh, to keep pursuing what is in the world that I don't see and what is in the world that I can feel and experience and how they are connected. And that has all been sparked by my experience parenting him. Mm, that is so beautiful. I mean, I, I just, there are so many different <laughs> concepts there. So this spiritual concept, um, the idea of, you know, the world around us, the natural world having the elemental beings um, that live there and how children are more tuned into that. I'm actually reading two books right now, too. Um, the Lord of the Elements by Bastian Bond. And he, he talks about that in the context of... Um, Christianity. He's a Christian community priest. And then another one, um, I think it's called Summer with Leprechauns. It's this woman, Tannis Hollywell. She went to, uh, she lives in Canada, but she went to Ireland and basically started talking with leprechauns. <laughs> it was really interesting, but it's so sweet. You know, it's, it's a story throughout, but then she really talks about that elemental world in a way that's so um, easy to understand and fun. And to, to think about the young child and their perception. Um, I know I had those experiences as a child. I mean, I had a tree that I was in conversation with that tree. I don't know if you had experiences like, do you remember having experiences like that? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I um, have traveled a lot. My husband is a acrobatic juggling performer. Actually, we both started doing circus through Waldorf education, um, believe it or not. And both uh, but certainly much, much more so. My husband had careers in that and my husband's uh, done fairly well. So we've traveled a lot and settled in different places and lived all over and, and that. And coming back to our hometown and walking around uh, where we are living here and the farm and where the school is in the area, the memories come back to me of the richness of connection that I had with the world around me. And it's kind of like tapping back into something that was always there. Um, and I, I had not experienced that richness and connection in any other, in any other place. And I can only say that just that I didn't spend time meditating or focusing in nature the way that I kind of do now. Mm -hmm. um, just as a child, I was just playing. Like you said, you know, you have these experiences and they just kind of come up and where do they come from? It's so interesting. So I've definitely noticed a very rich connection uh, back to these, uh, this space and this land where we've come back to and it feels very nice. <laughs> There is something about the place you grow up and, and the nature that's there and how you've been in it and connected to it and experiencing again. Yeah. So I think in in the um, interview we just did together, we, we talked about the different aspects, the many, many layers of anthroposophy. And I thought I would just ask you, 
as someone that's exploring it, are there things you have questions about? And I wonder if I could even be able to answer any of them. But I think I think there are some common questions that go through. But I wondered if you had any or you, you see things come up and maybe we can hash them out a little bit just for fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, I hope. Yes, I do have so many questions, but I really haven't um, gone that deep yet. Like I said, this whole season that I've been talking about anthroposophy with different guests, and they've all been so knowledgeable. Um, I, I really haven't. Uh, I haven't gone that deep yet. So I do have questions about things that I really haven't pursued at all yet. And one of those things which comes up when you're looking into anthroposophy and Steiner and Waldorf education that always gives me such a, a weird feeling is these, and I'm not sure if this is appropriate to talk about, but these comments I've heard that Steiner made about race and um, there's, you know, uh, basically they, I'm not a, I know that the context matters that they came up in, but even still they seem so, I guess, backwards from Steiner being so progressive. I mean, Steiner said something like, I uh, had a guest that mentioned that he was, he said something like in this time, we will all be experiencing a lot of anxiety, which I find so accurate. But then these comments kind of brought me to a place of like, well, that doesn't make any sense for someone that said, all of these really interesting things that we've been all pursuing for so many years. So I don't know if you can speak to, if you're familiar with that or could speak to that at all. That's definitely something that I feel like I've wanted to bust open, you know? Yeah, I think that is a great thing to talk about. And the topic is so um, up right now, uh, Steiner and race. Most of the things he said about humanity and the human race are about understanding each other and love and, you know, and, and we're living in a different time now, but some of the things he said were just like, not okay, just not okay. And I think, I think we just have to say that. And especially in the context of right now, even in the context of them, I mean, I think we have to, of that time, I think we have to remember that we've all basically um, been living in a white supremacy culture and he was living in that culture too. And so um, here we still are, and we're facing that really strongly in the world right now with the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. And I mean, just so, so much happening in the world right this minute. I don't know when people will tune into this episode, but it's, it's, it's kind of on fire right now. Um, so I think it's important to talk about Steiner and race because we can't accept a message from someone that maybe had um, this as a belief now. He was a product of his time. But overall, I'm going to try to find um, one of the quotes that um, he said that in actually in How to Know Higher Worlds, I just thought was really remarkable. And if I can find that um, by the end of the podcast, I'll, I'll read that out. Yeah. And one, I, f I feel I kind of go between on the one hand, I think this is someone who consistently said, don't let my word be what it is. You know, you take it you take what I say and you work with it and, you know, and, and that this isn't meant to be this dogmatic thing. And I think maybe that was part of it was, oh, well, we take what works and we take what doesn't work and that doesn't work and we can leave that behind. But the other side of me feels that he was so far ahead and being so perceptive and it had such a deep and rich understanding that that's, I guess, where I see the confliction is is understanding how someone could be so, so knowledgeable, essentially, and not be able to be above 
that, as you mentioned, being a product of his time. For instance, he had both girls and boys attend the first Waldorf school. That was one of his conditions for starting, which was, I don't, I don't think very traditional for the time. And he was, you know, sure that he wanted both girls and and boys to be able to attend. So that's, that's kind of my struggle with it. And uh, with anthroposophy and, and overall really being able to look at all of the ideas and all of the concepts and really, um, begin to dive even deeper, I guess that, that one. And I, I feel, I feel it's, it's hard to, it's a hard thing to get past. And I think a lot of people that are beginning to do this dive, uh, and curiosity into, uh, Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy are maybe struggling with, with the same thing in this moment. I mean, it really is a tough one. Um, and I think that I think of like the Lutheran church, for example, and at, I, I might, I might get this all wrong, but I think at the end of um, Martin Luther's life, he started writing very anti-Semitic things. And of course, the Lutheran church has completely denounced that part of his life, but has kept um, the other beautiful things he brought in the beginning of, um, you know, he was trying to create accessibility to um Christianity for anybody that wanted accessibility. And so um, to have to have that happen at the end of his life is really terrible. And I know that they have a statement that denounces that. And I know a lot of our org- organizations also have these statements and take actions, um, especially the Biodynamic Association. Uh, they're really doing amazing work with farm justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion overall, and making sure that their whole organization um, is really meeting the world right now in terms of its picture of um, diversity on the board and really acting in a way that shows that they care about these issues. And I, I think Waldorf schools, I think, struggle with this too. They'll have parents come in and they love the school and then they like read something from the one of the not so many passages from Steiner um, as opposed to his full work that says something maybe related to the evolution of consciousness. Um, and then and then it's like a blow up. And I think we have to, um, again, take the whole picture into consideration and really meet what is happening today. Like what, what are Wilder schools doing to make sure that they are bringing stories from different cultures and really making sure that there's accessibility in their school and that there's, you know, how are we working with anthroposophy and Waldorf and farming and all these things in a way that meets our time? And I, I think that Rudolf Steiner was always trying to meet his time. I know that I, that is part of what needs to happen for anthroposophy and Waldorf and anything connected to anthroposophy in the world right now. Yeah, so. if I can also mention about Waldorf education, because I get this asked this question a lot, and I do think uh, it's such a it's it's such a hard thing to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, if that's the expression. And I think I can just speak to my own personal experience and Waldorf education that I grew up in the fourth least diverse state, racially diverse state in the country in New Hampshire. And the Waldorf school that I went to um, was not very, not racially, not very racially diverse, um, although probably more diverse than the local public school uh, by race, I guess. And 
what I wanted to mention is that I feel, and I think a lot of people I'm, you know, in my thirties are feeling in my generation that my parents, they didn't do enough, you know, about race. They didn't do enough. They didn't know enough. Our, um, our parents, our teachers, they didn't do enough. And I certainly have those feelings about my own Waldorf education and about my parents, but there's something quite unique that I got from going to Waldorf school that I feel set me up for the world that I'm experiencing right now. And the ability to know somehow inside deeply what needs to be righted and also that I need to do work to do to get there. And I couldn't pinpoint a specific thing within my Waldorf education that did that, but I think it just comes back to this concept about Waldorf education, which has been at the core of it, which is to prepare the children for the world that they're going to need to meet. And we never know what kind of world that that's going to be. And in, in this instance, I think of just, for example, my parents, you know, they, uh, I, I'm able to understand that they did the best they could in the moment and, you know, they're still doing work and I'm still doing work and, and, but we're doing it, you know, and somehow I feel like I am open-minded enough to know that I, that I have to do it, I guess. And my husband said the same thing actually about his education, how he felt that it, it really prepared him for this moment and, and also, even before this very heightened, sensitive scenario that we're in, uh, you know, this is the first week of June here that we're living in, we, both of us have become a, even year, the past year, two year, three year, four year, five year period that um, even before having my son, that we are needing to do more than our parents did. And I, I just really feel like our education really helped us to be able to be aware and senti sensitive enough to the world around us to know that that need was there um, before the call came from from so many, you know. And and there is we're still doing work, but I just really feel that our uh, upbringing, but our education played a, played a role in us being prepared for that need and. Uh, going to work on it and do it from our own, you know, spark from our own um, in our invitation, I guess. That is so beautiful. I, I, I mean, and that is the remarkable thing about Waldorf education is the way that it it really educates towards freedom and thinking and um, courageousness. And my husband told me this story. He asked. He, he taught at a Waldorf school for about three years. Um, he's an art teacher now, uh, full-time. And he talked to a woman that went through Waldorf school. And he, she, he asked her, he was like, well, so what, what do you think was different about, you know, what did you leave with? And she said, you know, I was ne I'm not afraid to try something. Even if I have no idea how to get it started, I feel like I can just try. Absolutely. I hear that echo in what you're saying. You know, I had to tell you just quickly that my kids, we, this is sort of sad. We, we drove down our main street and all the streets, all the stores were boarded up and there were like hell's angels on the streets and people in front of the stores, like just kind of waiting for something to happen, some kind of protest that they could get in a fight. And I came home, my kids were like, mommy, you know, is this because of the virus? <laughs> I was like, no, it's not because of the coronavirus. Um, and I'm thinking, how can I talk to them about this? And 
they're all, you know, Waldorf asks us to protect our children, you know, keep them with truth, beauty, and goodness. But I thought, man, they're going to have to step into this world. So I'm going to say a little more than I would usually say. And I said, you know, someone was killed and it was because of the color of their skin. And my son right away, he said, oh, he said, all these people should go to Waldorf school because then they would know how to be nice. <laughs> and right, I mean, just like right away, he was like, I, I know that that is ridiculous because we live in community. We go to school in community. We're with the same kids all the time. We know that we have to work out our issues with each other. And it came through in his voice so beautifully. I do have that quote. It's amazing that we ended up talking about this topic, but I'll, I'll read this quote from How to Know Higher Worlds quickly. Okay. Which is right on your bookshelf. Chapter four. Um, Okay, here it is. In addition to anger and irritation, we must also struggle against other traits, such as fearlessness, superstition, superstition, prejudice, vanity, ambition, curiosity, the urge to gossip, and the tendency to discriminate on the basis of such outer characteristics as social status, gender, race, and so on. We may have difficulty in understanding that the struggle against such, such traits has anything to do with increasing our cognitive abilities. Yet every occultist knows that much more depends on these things than our ability to expand our intelligence and practice artificial exercises. Misunderstandings can easily arise if, for example, we believe that the injunction to overcome fear means becoming foolhardy, or to fight against discrimination based on social status and race means becoming blind to differences among people. The fact is that we learn to recognize these differences for what they are only when we are no longer caught up in prejudice. Even in ordinary life, fear of a thing prevents from seeing it properly. In this sense, racial prejudice prevents us from seeing into a human soul. The esoteric student must take such ordinary common sense and perfect it inwardly with great sensitivity and precision. So that's that's mostly what I hear from Rudolf Steiner. Um, and I think we just have to keep the conversation going. Yeah, I find that I'm so glad you read that. I find that fascinating because one of the things that um, my parents did was always talk about how everybody was equal and approach things from the, um, you know, like colorblind, like way of talking about them. And my parents have many have had many conversations about this since and you know, how in the moment they did the best with the tools that they had and how now, you know, my, I'm, my son's only two and I'm already talking to him about race and about, um, about differences and, and pointing them out, which is something that my parents didn't do because they wanted me to see everyone as equal, but in him understanding at first, and this is something I would love to see more of. And I think it's beginning in the uh, Waldorf community is ways to developmentally approach the topic of race with children. And this is something I think that's going to touch people the wrong way. But I think when people sit with it for a minute, they're going to go, yeah, I, I feel that. And I get that now. It is a weird, it's a, it's a weird, and at times for me has been slightly uncomfortable place to be with my son in this world of um, magic and beauty, because it's also sitting in a place of privilege that I have the ability to a stay home with him, create this environment with him, be able to observe, have the time to be able to slow down and observe the world with him in this way and bake bread that a lot of people don't have. And, and coming back to race, I think that, you know, we, 
I'm, you know, I've had the privilege of in my life, not having to look at race, I guess. And I, I say that because that I, I want my son to understand that, um, the, in, the way I'm approaching it now is in a way, uh, what I'm trying to feel out and learn. And like I said, I think there are more resources coming at first to just introduce these topics of first, there are differences. And that's exactly what you just read that Steiner said, there are differences. And instead of saying we're equal, we're equal, we love everybody. And it's not that simple. And it's so much more complex than that, but make breaking it down for that developing child. And for me, the way I'm doing it right now is saying, you know, this person is black and this person is, you know, in this picture is handicapped. We're mostly having these conversations over books and picture books that we have. And then, um, you know, there'll be a conversation that will go deeper over time as we are, um, you know, that this means that um, this person will be disadvantaged or this person has struggles that we might not have and, and actually observing the differences because, um, and you can, you can all correct me too, if I'm wrong here, I, I heard that what you read, just read Steiner say, and that is kind of what he's saying. I, I hear that uh, there are differences and, you know, when we, I guess our, there are differences and we, and we need to be aware of them and we need to teach our children to be aware of them. And I feel like that is the world that he's, he's painting, I guess, is when we are aware, so aware. And then what can we do beyond that? Is that, is that how you heard it too? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what he's saying is, is there's no, I mean, I'm just, it's really interesting to explore this, um, on the podcast because, we hadn't planned to talk about this, and I don't know if the world had planned to have all of this happen. I'm sure this is in a greater plan, and gosh, I, I hope it is what's happening in the world. So I'm I'm grateful that we're, we're just trying this out here. And what I heard in that quote is, the human soul is the human soul, but on the earthly plane and in the cultures we grow up with, and there are differences. And how do we honor the human soul and acknowledge those those differences? And yes. Yeah. And so um, I, I think, you know, I've heard, I heard a speaker at the Alliance for Public Waldorf Education Conference two years ago, and I can't remember his name right now, but he's like, you can say the myth of race, but you need to say the reality of racism. And so I hear that sort of echoed in this in this quote too. And he was um, extraordinary. I'll try to pull his name and and put it uh, up so people can access. And he he did a great job talking about his background and what the world is asking for right now in terms of how we meet each other. Yeah. So wow. So you really brought like the biggest question, Ashley. <laughs> 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 one of one of the biggest questions. I think the other big question um, that I'm trying to work with uh, is this question of um, the Christ and how that shows up in anthroposophy a lot and how that affects people. And you, I, we talked about this in your podcast about religion. And yeah, 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 I'm actually super interested. I'm actually very interested in that too because I had a guest on last year, um, and it was actually my least listened to episode, probably because the like episode. <laughs> Um, was such the tag was like such an obvious. It was like our Walder schools religious, which I thought was a topic that was super googled and people were interested in. But I think they just so quickly arrive at no that no one was actually interested in like the full of the answer. Um, so I had someone who's a Waldorf teacher on who is super interested, just so um, they're 
they're, they've pursued anthroposophy for so long. It's such a rich part of their life. It's such a wonderful uh, woman that I spoke with. And she explained to me uh, Waldorf, or excuse me, Christ in anthroposophy as love in this rich kind of association yeah. there. And that has always kind of sat with me really well. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so much to say here, but that's how it it resonates with me as a being of love. And I actually heard a Christian community priest, which is the movement for religious renewal that Rudolf Steiner helped to develop. She said, um, if you can just imagine what the best, best of a human being would be, that that is what that picture is. And I, I think that's really beautiful too. So um, this, this is, this is certainly for anybody that's encountering, encountering anthroposophy right now. These two issues, race and um, this picture of Christ, I think these are the two that can really, um, people can get stuck and maybe not go forward if they think they have to accept something as a belief rather than uh, something they can investigate for themselves. So, yeah. And something that I'm finding with anthroposophy is having so many conversations with different people that know more than I do has really created so a, a much more broad uh, picture. And I think that's kind of the problem with the internet right now is that when you look at something as deep and rich and thick, and as we've talked about layered as anthroposophy, if you just read one page, it's just not it's not the full picture. And I think if you are curious about some of these topics, it's um, to have multiple conversations with multiple people and read lots of different things. Like some people, they just dive right into all of Steiner's work and that works for them. But then there's other people that like to read about people that have read and know a lot about Steiner's work and that works for them. That's a good kind of launching point. So I think that there's not a one size fits all to learning more and diving deeper. Well, I think, Ashley, one way people can learn more is by listening to your podcast. So <laughs> I'm really glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. And I'm so glad to have you here on the show. And I'm looking forward. I hope we can have some more conversations like this. We went really far. <laughs> I know. We went we went deep there. But I think it was important. And I guess, you know, the energy right now kind of probably just brought that up for us. And it's present. And, and we feel it. And we went there. And I'm glad that we did. I'm glad that we did too. Okay, it was great talking with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for tuning in to The Anthroposopher. So here's a little information about our first sponsor, EducareDo. EducareDo is a nonprofit, volunteer-run organization offering accessible, experiential, self-directed distance learning courses based on the principal ideas of Rudolf Steiner. Courses are designed to awaken an individualized relationship to anthroposophy through readings, experiments, creative activities, and exercises towards inner development. Over 3,500 students from 30 countries have participated in their 26th lesson course in the Foundations of Anthroposophy. They also have several other anthroposophical courses available in different subject areas. The foundation year course only cost around 260 US dollars. And as a sponsor of this podcast, $100 will be donated to the Anthroposophical Society in America for every individual enrollment in any of their courses using the code ASA. So check out EduCareDo online and use this code ASA to enroll in their distance learning courses. You can find them at educaredo, that's E-D-U-C-A-R-E-D-O dot org.